Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Dear Colgate, I love that you love that I love being at home. You even let me whiten my teeth from home. Because you know how I feel about getting up from my cloud couch. The Colgate Optic White LED Kit gives professional level results in just 10 minutes a day for 10 days when used as directed. And that's why, Colgate, I want you to meet my parents. Because ever since meeting you, I've been living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Big Think is an online forum for big ideas from the world's most creative thinkers and doers. With the Think Again podcast, we're striking out into uncharted and dangerous territory. We're seeing what happens when experts are asked to respond to interview clips on topics they may or may not have any knowledge about. We want to see what happens with no script, no preparation. Each week, our producers tunnel deep into Big Think's archives to find ideas that are innovative, timely, or timelessly thought-provoking, and the clips are a total surprise to my guests and to me. Today, I'm very, very happy to be joined by Ruth Reichel, the best-selling author of the food memoirs Garlic and Sapphires and Tender at the Bone, editor-in-chief of Gourmet Magazine for a decade. Her new book is My Kitchen Year, 136 Recipes That Saved My Life. Welcome to Think Again, Ruth. Great to be here. So that's a pretty strong statement, recipes that saved my life. It's a true statement. The magazine was abruptly closed by Condé Nast, didn't see it coming. I was out of work for the first time since I was 16. I was 62 years old, no idea if I would ever get another job. Feeling, you know, the magazine was almost 70 years old, feeling like a real failure, it closed on my watch. And when the dust settled, I suddenly thought, you know, who am I? If, if I'm not Ruth Reichel, editor-in-chief of Gourmet or restaurant critic of the New York Times, who am I? And I kind of spiraled into a panic funk. And I did what I always do when I'm scared and lonely is I went into the kitchen. And this is really the story of what I was cooking then and how I really regrounded myself 
in the kitchen. And in some ways, it's a metaphor for cooking is my thing. It may not be yours, but there is a way through this and that there is really a lot to learn when you lose everything and that you really are someone outside of your job. I mean, cooking for me is a very, almost a meditation, you know. You have to be there. You have to be totally present when you cook. There's knives, there's heat. So you're in the moment. And in cooking, I sort of refound my core and remembered what was really important. Gotcha. That brings me to one other last thing I wanted to uh, ask about, which was I, I had I read that you worked with David Foster Wallace, you know, who's one right. of my favorite authors right. on the essay Consider, Consider the, lobster, the Lobster, which was your title, I guess, for it was our title, yes. The, the yes, Gourmet's title, and that you were editing him, giving him suggestions, and that there was a certain amount of tension there. What was that like? That back and forth with okay. him? Okay, now I was not his editor. Oh, okay. Jocelyn was his editor, okay. and but you know, we all, you know, the editing process, we all looked at this and he had in some of the footnotes he had some things about PETA that I said I can't live with this these have to go and the organization people for the ethical uh, yeah yeah and he was really in love with them and I had some real issues and Jocelyn finally came to me and she said I've argued myself blue in the face and he won't change it you have to talk to him so I am also like a huge, I mean, I, there's no writer I admire more. So here I'm about to say to him, oh, you've got to get rid of this. <laughs> and so we get on the phone and I say, I'm sorry, I just, I can't, you know, I want to take this sentence out and this sentence out and this sentence out. And he said, well, I'm going to pull the piece. And I said, you are totally within your rights to do that and anybody will publish this piece. It's a brilliant piece of writing. The New Yorker will take it, Harper's will take it, the Atlantic Monthly will take it. But if you want the people who cook to read this piece, it ultimately was a bioethics piece about what lobsters feel when they go into the pot. And you know, you want an audience of cooks to read it, you'll let us publish it. Right. And he took the three sentences out, I want it out, and he said, you're right. Beyond that, um, now I have this brilliant piece my publisher is horrified. People don't buy Gourmet Magazine to find out what lobsters feel going into the pot. People are gonna cancel their subscriptions in droves. I was really scared that I was gonna lose my job. If half a million people call up and say, cancel my subscription, you're gone. On the other hand, I couldn't not publish the piece. For me, it was another lesson, which was never underestimate your audience. Not one person wrote in and said, cancel my sister. We got a mountain of mail. And some of it was, I don't like the fact that you're publishing this piece. But nobody said, and I'm so furious, I want to cancel my subscription. And most people said, thank you very much. This was a fascinating piece. Gotcha. All right, well, I think we better move on. Quick recap, here's how the show works. Our producers have chosen short interview clips for us to listen to. I have not seen them. Um, you have not seen them. They could be on any subject. Are we ready? I'm ready. Okay, cool. This is psychiatrist and author Julie Holland on why mood swings are sometimes a good thing. The idea of why being moody could be good for you really has to do with taking advantage of one of the biggest strengths and assets that women have, which is this intuition. 
So, for example, say in the days leading up to your period where you may feel that you're more sensitive to your environment, it's actually good to pay attention to these sort of things because the truth is the rest of the month you're sort of covering it over. Um, but those things are actually important. And what you're feeling, it's important to pay attention to that sort of thing. If we feel our emotions and are able to express, you know, what you're doing is upsetting to me, I think what you're doing is wrong, everybody benefits and hopefully behaviors improve. One of my concerns that I write about in Moody Bitches is that I'm worried that because so many people now are choosing to take psychiatric medications and antidepressants and anti-anxiety meds, that they're tamping down how they feel. The further away we get from nature and from what is natural for us as social primates, the more sick and miserable we're going to be. I mean, I'm seeing this in my private practice in psychiatry for decades now, um, that it, if someone is sort of truer to themselves and how they feel and how they are, and also doing things that are more natural for us, like moving your body, being outside, getting some sun, you know, there are very real consequences to moving away from nature and what's natural for us. It's interesting to me that this was chosen because, you know, my mother was bipolar. So I have a lot of experience with people just letting it all hang out. I mean, part of being bipolar is you don't cover up any of those, you know, not the mania, not the depression. So I have probably a bigger tolerance for that kind of mood swing than most people because I grew up with it right. all my life. But, I mean, to connect this a little bit to food, I mean... I feel that we're now a society that plays it so safe that we don't invite people into our homes anymore because it's much safer. Let's just meet in a restaurant, right? right. We, nobody's taking any risks. I'm not going to show you who I really am because I'm not going to let you into my house to see that, you know, my cats walk all over the counters and my dishes aren't quite clean or whatever. Right. I'm not going to let you know who I really am. It's a sort of concrete manifestation of this same thing as I'm going to drug my most basic reactions. So we're, we're all calm and smooth. And I, too, worry about the drugging of America and the tamping down. I mean, Why do you think we're like that at this point? I mean, this is, it seems like an American thing, at least in part. I know the British also apparently have trouble <laughs> accessing their emotions. Well, I'll tell you why I think we're like that. I mean, at one point, we had a lot of social conventions that applied. You know, if there are no rules about how you dress and how you eat and how you talk to each other, then, oh my God, think about what might happen. We're playing it really safe. And, you know, in the absence of social rules, we're just saying, okay, everybody's just gonna like run at half mast. But I think the other thing that she's talking about here is specifically aimed at women which is, you know, we're supposed to be nice. We're just supposed to be nice. And that behavior that's absolutely tolerable in men, in women, is considered bitchiness. I wonder what you think about that with respect to, like, Hillary Clinton's candidacy at this point. Like, I've seen a lot of op-eds to the effect that because she's a woman, she's not being treated fairly or understood correctly. Or I think that the deep sexism of this country comes out in the electoral process. And I do think that being a woman is politically a huge handicap. Yeah, she's sort of damned if she's too tough and she's damned if she's too 
well, yeah, whatever warm. she yeah, whatever she does, <laughs> it's whatever. you know, if she doesn't bake cookies, she's terrible, <laughs> and if she's like strong and decisive, she's terrible. Right. Okay, so I think uh, are we ready to move on? I'm to the next ready clip? to move on. All right, let's see what we got. This one is Jane McGonigal, who's a game designer and a futurist and who has been on this podcast before, talking about how making a little prediction can actually get your brain ready to learn something new. If you need a little extra energy or you need to pay really close attention to something today, here's what you should do. You should make a prediction about anything. It can be a prediction of how many emails you'll get in the next hour. It could be a prediction about who's going to win the baseball game tonight. Make a prediction and then just wait to see if you were right or not. Every time that you make a prediction, you get a little bump of dopamine in the reward pathways of your brain. So we, we often think of dopamine as the reward neurochemical uh, when there's something we really want, like, like a cookie or a pat on the back, and we get this dopamine hit in anticipation of it. So we think about it as being really related to pleasure and, and fun and, and satisfaction. But the reason why dopamine feels good is that the brain is actually trying to trick us into learning or improving our strategies for being successful or getting what we want. And you could really use this in, in very strategic ways. For example, if you're giving a presentation, ask your audience at the beginning of your presentation to make a prediction. It could be about your presentation. It could be about something in their own lives. You've given them a dopamine hit. Now they're paying attention. They're going to actually learn more from what you're about to say. So make a prediction. It's a really easy way to get the benefits and the learning benefits specifically of a dopamine bump. You'll also just feel happier, which is good too. I love that. I am never giving another speech without asking the audience to make a prediction. That is fantastic. But you know what I want to know is, do you have to believe it? You know, because I can say to an audience, right. okay, I want you to make a prediction about how much you're going to enjoy this or how long it's going to take or, right. um, you know, whatever. But do you have to really be invested in it to get the dopamine? Yeah. Uh, which is, uh, I would imagine you do. And so if you say to an audience, make a prediction, and they just sort of like go, well, I don't really care, Cheryl. I'll make a prediction. Right. And, and the other thing is, like, you think about this, okay. The biggest example of making a prediction is betting, right? Right. You go to the track. Right. And it, it's very quick, for one thing. And most betting is, you know, it's not an hour. Right. You know, you put your money down, the horses run. And I'm just trying to think of other times when you're that deeply invested in the prediction that you've made. Optimism is not a bad example because optimism is essentially a prediction in every circumstance that things are going to go well, right? So people who are optimistic prime themselves for positive experiences because they're all the time predicting that everything is going to go well. Right. Except that even optimists don't always predict things are going to go well. No, but like in general, their tendency, like encountering a new situation or walking into a job interview or whatever it might be, gets to think like, huh, things are all right. Things are going to be good, right? Right. And then researchers have found that generally things go better for those people. Right. And then I'm thinking, so she does game theory. Right. So she's one of the people who isn't too worried about what 
kids spending all their time on video. Yeah, quite the opposite. She's always advocating for games as a positive tool, but saying that the people playing them should be conscious of the skills that they're using, how it's affecting their brain, and then trying to apply them elsewhere. You know, we are in the middle of this like ridiculous technological revolution where, you know, I mean, even 10 years ago, we didn't all walk around with a computer in our hands right. all day, right. every day. In my field, I mean, I, I see the growing interest in food as directly related to people spending so much time in virtual space that food is one of the things that you can't replicate virtually. Right. So, I mean, I think the interest in cooking is that it's real. Why people are so interested in restaurants, they want to go and meet someone in real space and have a real experience. And yet these virtual spaces, they do some good things for cooking and food and, you know, Instagram, Pinterest, Twitter, being able to share all of this new recipes, new information, create new subcultures of foodies and stuff. Oh yeah, no, I mean, Twitter was actually part of what saved my life. I spent most of that year in a kind of isolated mountaintop and in the middle of winter when we were completely snowed in and then the electricity goes out, it's odd how quickly you can feel really isolated in the middle of a snowstorm when it gets dark really early and the you know, light's gone for three or four days. And the connection with Twitter was the thing that made me feel not alone. And I was in my kitchen cooking with my Twitter community, so. And I think it's interesting though that like, I have to consciously disconnect and not look at my phone sometimes simply because you get into recursive loops of like checking Facebook, checking Twitter, checking this, checking that, which I think do plug up your ability to take in what's around you and, and have spontaneous experiences sometimes. Yeah, well, I actually, I mean, I write, I have a little cabin in the woods that's heated only with wood, and I chose deliberately not to wire it because it is really hard to cut yourself away from the endless internet chatter. I mean, writing for me is a process where, I mean, I hate writing, all writers hate writing, but you sit there waiting to vanish. You know, something happens, you sit there going, I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't do this, this is so hard, I can't do it. And then on the good days, you're suddenly doing it and you're not even that I can't do it voice goes away and suddenly it's just happening. And, you know, to sort of circle it back to something that you were saying earlier on, you know, it's a little bit like that moment you described, you know, that sort of post-gourmet moment where the brain is going, who am I? I'm not that thing anymore. What am I supposed to be? What am I supposed to do? Blah, 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 blah. And then at some point, through cooking, through living daily life, finding yourself back in the stream of existence where you're actually just present and it's not about like what you're supposed to be or what you should have done or what you, what's next. You know? Yeah, I mean, I think you need to disconnect and just be in your own head till you get back to that place where you trust yourself again. Right. Well, Ruth Rachel, it's been wonderful having you on the show. Thank you so much for being here today. Well, my pleasure. And that's it for this week's episode of Think Again. Next week for Halloween, No Connection, we are joined by the amazing Jesse Ventura. If you are liking what you're hearing on this show, 
please help us keep it on the air by going over to iTunes and rating and, if possible, reviewing us. We really appreciate it. It'll take just a minute of your time, but it makes a very big difference to us. See you next week.